Thanks very much. Morning, everyone. Hope you have all been enjoying. Has summer actually started officially? No, it's pretty much here, though, isn't it? Um, yeah, my name's Johnny, if we've not met before. We are continuing a series looking at the, um, the letter of 1 Peter, which is it's like five or six books back from the end of your Bible. So basically, if you start a revelation at the end and keep working back, you'll get there. If you get to like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you've gone way too far. Um, but Joe was last week introducing this new series, which is called Elect Exiles. Um, and so we saw that this, this letter of 1 Peter is written by Peter, the same Peter who was a disciple of Jesus and who denied Jesus. Um, and then he writes this letter basically to these scattered Christians who are scattered through all of these different areas and provinces, all with, within what is modern-day Turkey. Um, and he, calls the, he basically starts his letter by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Galatia, Cappadocia, and names another couple of places. But the reason we've called this preaching series Elect Exiles, and that's our passage for this morning if you want to start heading there, um, is because that is what, as Christians, we are. We are, first of all, elect. So we're chosen children of God, loved by God, filled with the Holy Spirit. And we, we are also exiles. So we don't belong in this world. It's like our passport, if you like, says citizen of heaven. And there's a sense in which that all the time that we are on earth, although we're in the world, this isn't really our true home. Our true home is with our Father. And so we're always then going to face problems and difficulties as we encounter culture shock, if you like, of being of another, um, another kingdom. And basically, we're just heading straight into the letter this morning. And Peter begins the letter after he's done this brief greeting in the same way that Paul begins many of his letters, like in Ephesians, and that's with worship. So verse 3 of our passage today, Peter begins, um, he's already said, I'm Peter, I'm writing to you, you, these scattered Christian exiles. And then he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, This whole passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is all about worship. Apparently in the Greek, I don't speak Greek or read Greek, Um, But apparently the Greek for these next eight, nine verses that we're going to be looking at is all just one long sentence. It's all just one continuous thought, and it's all about worship. Now, you might have seen last Friday that the American um, pastor and preacher Tim Keller died after a battle with with pancreatic cancer. He's written lots of books, lots of influence in in Christianity today. Um, and one of the most helpful things that I've read in any of Tim Keller's books is basically his, this idea that we are, we are all worshippers, that we don't have to say that we are part of any religion or faith to make ourselves a worshipper. We all worship something, whether that is God or something else. Um, we all tend to take good things and elevate them in our lives to become God things. So whether that is a desire for money or financial security um, or romance or love or sex or whether it's a good job or a good homie or our family or living comfortably, all of these things are things which we can worship in our lives. Um, and it's interesting that the Bible you know, doesn't skirt around this. There are so many calls for us to worship in the Bible. And it's interesting that when the Bible phrases like worshipping God, it often phrases it as a command, like something that it, it compels us to do. It's not just suggesting, hey, worshipping God might, it might be a good idea. You might like to consider it sometime. Try it out, see if it works for you. Um, but the, the Psalms are full of it. Like Thomas started Psalm 100, 
one this morning. It praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, exalt the Lord our God. And I think, at least for me, when I look at the Bible's commands to worship God, sometimes my heart does a little like catch. Like there's almost kind of a little bit of uncertainty about it, a little bit of hesitancy. And I think that can come from potentially two things. First of all, I think because sometimes we can think that when we're called to worship God in the Bible, that we're called to just like lip service. So it's like making sure that we tell God that he's really great and make sure that we, you know, we stroke his ego. And so then basically he'll be happy with us. And actually that's what the Psalms are asking us to do. And even if we know that's not really the case, it's sometimes how we can approach those kind of commands, like praise God, like, okay, God, I'll praise you. And we might be saying it with our lips, but we're not really feeling it with our hearts. And second, I think we sometimes think, well, if God is saying, you know, like, he's got these commands in, in his word to praise him so much, it can seem like he's, you know, just like he's hungry for compliments, or he just wants his, his ego to be stroked. He's just looking for people to say how great he is, and maybe we then just kind of get this, like, tit-for-tat relationship where we say, hey, God, you know, I'll stroke your back, and I'll tell you how great you are, and then in return, I'm going to hope that you're going to give me everything that I want and keep me healthy and happy and safe, etc., Here's the thing, though, that we need to know about worship. Worship is neither of those two things. This is not what the experience of worshipping God, the God of the Bible, is like. It's not the experience of worship which Peter wants for us as well. And um, one man who struggled with this same problem was the author C.S. Lewis. So he lived in the 20th century, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, probably what he's most famous for, probably the most famous like British Christian writer, Um, theologian of the last century. But he wrote a book called Reflections on the Psalms, and I read it earlier this year. I'm going to be honest with you, I struggled with a whole lot of it, like loads of it. I was looking back through it and thinking, like, I don't remember very much of this. Basically, most of the chapters, I was, felt like a real slog, which I'm going to say was probably me. Like, I'm sure it's a really great book, and many other people have benefited from it loads. But I'll tell you what, there was one chapter, chapter nine, it's called A Word About Praising, And oh my goodness, one of the best chapters of any book that I've ever read. I'm sure all of you, you've got your top five chapters that you've ever read in books like laid out and you're just always reading them off to people, right? This is one right at the top of my list. And basically he talks about this problem. He says like, well, hey, when we're coming to worship God, it feels like we're doing it because we're just paying compliments to a vain person. And we're just kind of mustering up this and saying, oh God, yeah, I'll tell you how great you are and then I'll expect good things back from you. But actually, he says, he realizes what worship actually is. When you worship something, regardless of whether it's God or something else, it's because you're enjoying it. That's the essence of what worship is. He says that he realized that worship is enjoyment overflowing into praise. Worship is enjoyment overflowing into praise. And we see this everywhere, right? So if you enjoy watching a program on BBC iPlayer or Netflix, whatever it is, you just can't stop talking about it. You want to go to everyone else and you want to tell them, I've seen this amazing program, Sort Your Life Out with Stacey Solomon. I just want to tell about it. I'm just going to mention it in preachers all the time so as many people can watch it as possible, right? Because we're enjoying it. We want to share it. We want to say, look, this is an incredible thing and I want other people to get part of it as well. Um... We're not being asked to kind of worship God and then we enjoy him in two separate things. And so probably like one of the best quotes in the chapter, he says, the Scotch Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. 
That's like, that's world changing for I think your perspective on worship. When God invites us to worship him like he does in this passage, he's inviting us to enjoy him, to delight in him, to enjoy spending time with him. Psalm 16 says, in the, his presence there is fullness of joy. Like compared to all other things that we worship, that we seek our happiness and our joy in, all of those will at some point give up on us and will fade and perish. But in God, we have got a source of our worship and delight who will never let us down, who we're going to spend all eternity just learning more and more about as we enjoy and worship more and more. And this principle is all over this passage. Basically, that's why I'm introducing it by starting this. 1 Peter doesn't lay out. He's not going through and trying to explain sentence by sentence how worshiping God is the same as enjoying him. But it's, but it's all over here, as we'll see. But to summarize kind of Peter's points in this passage, it would be this. We worship God by enjoying God. And that's where we're going this morning. So if you want to go 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 12, we'll read it together. And then we'll see how in the passage we can worship God by enjoying God. So verse 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, let me not go to early. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. I'm just going to lift this up a little bit. No, that's not what I was trying to do. I thought that was going to look much more cool and collected than it did. There we go. That's a little bit better. So Peter wants us to see that the key to worshiping God is enjoying God. And I just want to break down what Peter says into, into three chunks and basically ask, how is he inviting us to enjoy God, to worship God by enjoying him? So first of all, Peter says that we can enjoy God in the gospel. And second, we can enjoy God in our trials, in our sufferings. And third of all, we can enjoy God in the cross. So let's take those together. First point, enjoy God in the gospel. So Peter starts, as we said, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith is shielded by God's power 
until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And in all this, you greatly rejoice. Peter starts the main part of his letter, as we've said, by worshipping God. And then he's straight into talking about the gospel. The gospel means good news. And it basically just refers to what it was that God did for us when he sent Jesus to the cross. And Jesus died to take all of our sin, all of our guilt and our shame. And to give us all of the blessings which are now ours in Christ. That we are forgiven by God, that we are redeemed, bought from sin and now experiencing new life in him, that we are adopted, loved, delighted in sons and daughters of our heavenly father. And often when the Bible talks about the gospel, it's talked about in a way which is supposed to lead to worship. So like in Ephesians 1, where Paul is talking about how we're adopted by God, it says we're adopted by him to the praise of his glorious grace. And we are forgiven and redeemed for the praise of his glory. It's like all of these blessings which God has given us are supposed to lead to worship. And we can see from our like, main point this morning, it's because we're supposed to enjoy them. So we take our adoption by God and we enjoy just loving thinking about this and experiencing it and having the Holy Spirit make it so real and true in our hearts that we just bubble up with praise and we just want to worship God and enjoy him. And there's hundreds of things that we could talk about that Peter says about the gospel in these first few verses. But ultimately, he's talking about our hope, talking about the reason that we have strength to face all kinds of trials and difficulties and sufferings um, in life. He's talking about the thing which we are looking forward to, the thing which we can prize and hold up above everything else. And so I just want to look at what kind of hope is it that God has given us in the gospel And Peter starts by telling us that it is a living hope. So that verse 3 says, In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now if we ask, like, what, what does this mean? What is a living hope? Well, Peter says that it starts from the fact that we have got new birth. In the same way that Jesus said to Lazarus, right, in, when he's dead in the tomb, like, Lazarus, wake up come out of the tomb, and Lazarus responds to him and comes out. Now, that is what happens to us when we become a Christian. It's like God performs a miracle, speaks to our hearts, and says, like, Johnny May, wake up, and then my heart is alive, and it can see what God is truly like. And so now we've got this new living hope, something that we can look forward to, and then Peter tells us that this living hope in the next bit is an inheritance Now, when we think of inheritance, we tend to think of like something which is given to us when a, when a parent or a, or a relative dies, and then it's something that we receive. In, um, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, inheritance was most commonly like the patch of land that the Israelites would have had in the promised land of Canaan. And so it was the land that was like theirs. It is what God has promised to them. And it carries lots of those same connotations here. It's basically good things that are possessed by us. We've been given an inheritance. It's good things that now in the gospel we own. Like what, what are those good things? Well, first of all, it's, it's God himself. Notice at the start um, of the passage, it says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like the top bit of our inheritance is, is Jesus. Jesus is mine. I can experience a living, breathing friendship and relationship with Jesus Christ. And then comes our, our forgiveness of all of our sins, comes our adoption into God's family, that Jesus is my brother, God the Father is my father. 
It's the Holy Spirit who now lives in us and, and helps us and encourages us and gives us gifts that we can exercise to build up the rest of the church. All this is part of our inheritance that God gives us just out of sheer grace because we're a new creation and we are in Jesus. And it's a kind of strange phrase because he, he says a living hope. And actually that kind of, people basically say different things about what this bit means. Like it, I guess at the ultimate level, it's talking about Jesus. He is literally our living hope. It says that um, we are given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus is our one who, he's not dead, he's alive. He's the one and all, all of our hope centers on. But it's important that we know that this is not a, a hope that we just kind of is waiting for us when we die. It's not kind of that we are just looking forward to heaven as the way that propels us through all of our, of our trials and our difficulties in life, even though that would be enough. But it's something that is ours, waiting for us securely in heaven, and it's going to be enjoyed fully then. But it's something that we can enjoy now. So like in Romans 8.23, right? We are, we are the adopted sons and daughters of God, whom he loves very much and delights in. That is completely and utterly true of us now. And yet in Romans 8.23, Paul says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So it's kind of like, well, we are children of God, completely, utterly, definitively now. And it's also something that we're looking forward to kind of getting the completion and the full enjoyment of as we look forward to in the future. Think of the, um, the hymn, Blessed Assurance. It starts, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. It's like we've got this inheritance that we're looking forward to in heaven. And now all of the goodness, all of the things that we've been enjoying this morning, like our, our access to God that Barbara was talking about, our ability to come and pray and speak to him that Lou was sharing, Actually, all of this is just a foretaste of like the full joy that we're going to be able to experience of our living hope in heaven. And we also need to know that this living hope is an invincible hope. It's like amazing, that little phrase. He says, you've been um, born into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. If you just consider like all of the other things that we are so easily tempted to worship and enjoy in life, even like the best of things, like our our families, our dearest friends, our, our spouses and children, our, our parents, or like really good jobs that we just love to do and feel really fulfilled doing. Actually, all of other pleasures outside of God are all things which will, in some way, at some point, perish or can spoil or can fade. And yet, Paul says that our inheritance that waits for us in heaven is one that can never perish, it will never die, it can never spoil, it can never fade. It's just amazing to contemplate. I think it drives us to really think about the things that we are so quick to idolize, all right? And each of us, we're going to have different things. What are the things that, apart from God, kind of take up almost too much of our, our time, our, our love, our attention? What do we spend time thinking about when we've got those few moments? That can be kind of signs of things that we might choose to idolize. But actually, it's gives us the incentive to go to those things and say, actually, I know that that is not going to give me the same joy. It can't give me the same joy and security that my inheritance in God can, because it will perish and spoil and fade, but my inheritance in God definitely won't. So we have a living hope, an invincible hope, and also, Peter says, it's a certain hope. 
So we might say, well, that's amazing. What an inheritance I've got waiting for me in heaven. And it's, it's not going to perish. It's waiting for me there. But, but what if I mess up? What if I just walk away from my faith? What if I don't follow God how I should? What if I betray him? What if my faith fails? And actually, we know that this living hope is absolutely certain and 100% for us. And there's two reasons that Peter gives us. One, because in verse 3, he says, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So if you want to know like, how certain is your access to, to God, how certain is your access to the inheritance that waits for you in heaven, how certain is your place in God's family, well, it's as certain as Jesus Christ being alive now. So actually, if you are ever tempted to think, well, perhaps love's, God's love for me is waning because I've, I've, I've not spoken to him for about three months. Okay, well, know that the truth is that that's not what your access to God is dependent on. Your access to God is dependent on the fact that Jesus died on the cross and is alive right now. That's how certain your inheritance is. And it's also certain because Peter says God is holding on to us and will not let us go. He says... This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And then verse 5, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So actually, if you feel, actually, I'm not sure that my faith feels strong enough. You know, I'm not sure I'm good enough a Christian to make it all the rest of my life following God and worshiping him in the way that I want to. Well, the answer is, again, well, that's not 100% dependent on you. Okay, the thing that which propels us to, to enjoy God, to seek him more, to try and live a godly life, is the fact that in verse 5 it says, you who through faith are shielded by God's power. So actually the thing which is constantly protecting us, the thing which makes sure that we're going to get to that inheritance, is not us, it's God. He, through faith, is shielding us, literally it's like a military term, protecting us by his power. So if again you're thinking, hey, my faith feels really weak, well, again, it's not actually your, your faith which is going to get you there in some ways. It's God who is the one shielding you so that your faith is going to make the distance. It's like if your faith feels threadbare, that's not the thing which is going to keep you going. It's your faithful father. He's the one who keeps you going. It's a living hope, an invincible hope, a certain hope, and it's a gracious hope. This is not an inheritance which is dependent on our performance it's not dependent on how much we read the Bible. It's not dependent on our church attendance. It's not dependent on how well we have spoken to our friends and family and colleagues this week. Actually, this inheritance is ours sheerly because of God's grace and mercy. Peter says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Listen, we are elect exiles. God, before he created time or anything else, literally chose us, knowing full well every bad thought and feeling and word and action that we would ever commit. And he looked from eternity past and saw us and said, just by grace, I want you in my family. And actually, that is dependent not on anything that we do or do not do, but just on his sheer grace for us. This is grace because he's, it says, in his great mercy he has given us. Again, the thing which has given this inheritance to us, I ask, why am I a son of God? Why does he forgive me even for the deepest, darkest things that I feel and think? And the answer is because he is full of great mercy. 
a gracious hope. And then finally, just in case we need it spelling out for us, Peter summarizes this all in verse 6 by saying, in all this you greatly rejoice. As if that needs saying, and Peter clearly thinks it does. This is supposed to lead us to worship. When we contemplate the gospel, like in our, in our sung worship, in our reading of the Bible, perhaps in just like a conversation that we have with a friend or family member, we're supposed to like grasp just the wonder of what it is that God has done for us, that sheerly out of grace, he has given us such a wonderful, invincible, secure inheritance. And it kind of leads us to go like, God, why would you do this? And the answer is just because he loves us, because of his grace. And that just leads us to worship. We're going to sing after, the, after we've taken communion, living hope, unsurprisingly. It says, the cross is spoken, I am forgiven, the king of kings calls me his own. Beautiful saviour, I'm yours forever, Jesus Christ, my living hope. And you see, it's that expression of like, we know that, don't we? The joy of when you really get God's grace. And we can kind of like slip away from it. We kind of go maybe days or, or weeks or even months where we kind of lose sight of the wonder of it. And then perhaps just like maybe through a, a prophetic word during the worship or something that we think about or a prayer that someone prays for us. And it just hits us all over again. And we're like, God, the gospel is amazing. And I think in terms of what this looks like on the ground as we go away from church this morning is that we've got to fight for sight of the gospel. Like just contemplate for a moment just how many of our problems in life stem from the fact that we've begun to forget the gospel. We've stopped preaching the gospel and rehearsing the gospel to ourselves. Or if we remember the gospel and we could go through and we could, you know, give all of the, the Sunday school answers, but actually it's lost its wonder. And we need to pray for that wonder to return. Actually, it's got to be a priority in our life to say, well, actually, I've got this wonderful inheritance. God is mine. Jesus is mine. All of these wonderful truths that we can enjoy. And we've just got to fight. And it is a fight, isn't it? Because there is an enemy who is trying to stop us at all costs from knowing what it is ours in Christ. It's like the devil can't take the gospel away from us, not by any means. He's 100% unable to do that. But he can try and clutter our lives with things that are going to get in the way of us seeing and enjoying what that gospel truth is. We've got to prioritize time. Say, God, even when I'm, in the times when I'm most not feeling it, just taking time to, to talk to you, for ask your Holy Spirit to fill me, to open my eyes so that I can see the wonder of the gospel again. So we worship God by enjoying God. And we can enjoy God very, very much in the gospel. And we're going to do that in just a moment. And second, we can enjoy God in trials. So verse 6, Peter says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And then verse 8, it says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. I think Peter tells us some pretty important things about suffering and about trials, which is quite a common theme in the letter. Um, and actually in our society, we don't do great with suffering and with trials and with times of difficulty. Like we all know that these come to us. That's not a surprise, although sometimes we kind of are surprised by them. But actually, 
we kind of in our, I guess it's partly because we're, we're so filled with comfort. Like I was in an assembly last week, secondary school teacher. Um, the teacher was giving the assembly and made the point that we are so comfortable and like entitled to luxury in our society that we literally flush our toilets with drinking water. And I've never really stopped to think about just how preposterously luxurious that is. That like we have so much access to drinking water that we, we use it to wash with and to flush our toilets with. And actually, if you go to just some parts of the world when there's no access to drinking water, even for drinking, let alone for doing other things with, we're so comfortable and so we feel like we're entitled to be free from stress, and we're entitled to be healthy, we're entitled to comfort and just a lack of suffering in our lives, in a way which at other times in the world were just completely bizarre and absurd. But Peter tells us some key things about suffering and about trials. First of all, trials, and that could be anything. That could be stress to do with a job. That could be poor health for either you or someone that you know or love. It could be a difficulty in a, in a friendship or a marriage relationship. Peter tells us that trials are expected, that actually this is not a surprising part of life. Jesus said that we should expect them. Peter was with Jesus, and so in 1 Peter 4, later in the letter, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I said a couple of months ago, and I was preaching on the, um, the passage where the, the Israelites are in the wilderness, that suffering, wilderness experiences, trials are the normal Christian life. This is how we live. This is kind of the air we breathe, if you like, until we get to heaven, because we are elect, chosen by God, but we're exiles. We're living in a world in which we don't belong. But Peter encouragingly tells us that trials have got perspective. Um, so actually trials in the grand scheme of our whole lives, although they, can, they are like so absorbing sometimes in terms of the stresses, the, the health issues that they place on us, they are just a moment in the whole of eternity. It's so interesting to see how he starts it in verse 6. He says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now, I appreciate that when we face trials, what we don't tend to think is, hey, this is just a little while, and then glorious inheritance with God in heaven. That's not how we tend to process things. And just as a big heads up, right, yes, Peter says this in verse 6, wisdom is knowing that when someone who we know is struggling, we don't go to them and say, but this is, this is just a little thing. It's just a little thing. Because that might be 100% true, but it doesn't come across as all that loving often when you start with that. Um, so trials, we need to have perspective with trials. And we also know to need to know the, like the very, it feels controversial to say it almost, that trials exist for our joy. They exist to help us enjoy God. Now there's loads more that we could say about trials and suffering, but just to focus on this, because this is what Peter does. Peter is clear that like, the trials that we go through and we experience have purpose, that actually they're not accidental. There is no bad thing which happens to us which is outside of God's good plans for our lives, as perplexing and as confusing as that might be when they do happen. But actually there's two good things which trials do for us, which Peter says. They prove trust and they produce trust. So they prove trust. Peter says this. He says, these have come, so these trials, that the proven genuineness of your faith, we have greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
So it's kind of like, well, actually, this trial is coming to us. We experience these trials so that our faith can be proven to be, to be rock solid, to be there. Now, the question is, like, who is wh- who's that for? Because we know, like, God knows all things, right? So he knows if he's given us faith, which is making the distance, because he's the one shielding us by his power. And two potential answers. One is to, to say to all, like, heavenly powers, angels and demons, like, look, I've put my hand on this person's life and they're mine. And look, you're going to see that even though trials come and shake them incredibly, I've put my Holy Spirit in this person and their faith is going to make it. And actually, it's a way of God being glorified, showing all angels, demons, all spiritual powers like, hey, God is glorious. And I think also the kind of trust which is a blessing is that it shows us that our faith is there. I think we know, wouldn't we, and this is kind of leading on to the second point that trials produce trust, that the times where we often feel most close to God, not all the time, but probably the times where my relationship with God feels most intense is the times that are most hard. The times which are most easy and comfortable, it can often seem easy just to coast through in relationship with God. And my my prayer life starts to diminish because it doesn't feel as urgent. And then trials suddenly come and then, hey, I'm praying a whole lot more than I was. This week has been a very crazy, busy week. Got a, a job offer um, just out of the blue, which is obviously a blessing like that. It's not a bad thing to have out of the blue by any strength of the imagination. But it was also very kind of stressful because with teachers giving notice, you've got to basically do them by the Friday just gone and got the call on Tuesday. And it was suddenly like, oh man, there's a, a whole lot of thinking about jobs that I wasn't expecting to be doing. At times just feeling so anxious about it in a way that I wouldn't normally, just kind of feeling it across like my whole body, just sitting at my desk at at work and just feeling kind of anxious and stressing through things, struggling to sleep. And yet, I tell you what, my prayer life has not been in a great place the last couple of months and it does feel like, hey, it's been rekindled and God has really done something in my heart and helped me to just enjoy prayer. And now I'm thinking like, cool, why did I find prayer so difficult? It feels so much easier now. It's supposed to lead us to joy so that actually as our faith increases, as we grow closer to God in those times of trials and hardships, we get to know him better. One passage that I want to share before we move on to our final point and take communion. In Hebrews 12, verse 5 to 7, you might even want to turn there. One of the most incredible, um, I think, passages in the Bible I am um, a couple of years ago. Just I'd, I'd never I'd read it before, but I never quite noticed like just the full amazingness of what it what it says. I'm reading a book again um, called "Enjoying God" by Tim Chester, which is a great book. Again, hardly rec- highly recommend it. Right, this letter also probably in one of my top five or ten favorite chapters that I've ever read. Okay, but in Hebrews 12, the the writer says this, and have you completely forgotten? This word of encouragement, this is verse 5, chapter 12, that addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. And then verse 7, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? Now, a couple of key things which I think this passage says in line with what Peter's been saying, um, is that we're supposed to like treat hardship as discipline. So hardship, I think that's pretty much all kinds of suffering, isn't it? Any kind of difficulty, hardship, we could be counting as discipline. 
And so the, the writer is saying, well, actually, when you experience those times of hardship and those trials and those difficulties, what you're supposed to experience it is, is God disciplining you. And then it says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And then he says, God is treating you as his children. So here's like the, the logical chain of reasoning that really got me is, well, if I'm supposed to endure any kind of hardship as God's discipline, and if discipline is a sign that God loves me and I am his son, then if I follow that through, that means that any hardships or trials that I'm facing are actually proof of God's love for me. Now, that's completely changes the way that you think about trials, doesn't it? When you think, actually, as perplexing as this might be, when I go through times of hardship and trials, actually what I'm experiencing is God saying, I love you. Now, I'm not going to explain, how, I'm not going to attempt to explain how that just completely resolves all of the difficulties we face, because it doesn't. And I'd want to give important note, this does not make suffering not hard. Okay, it's, that's not what it does. But it does give us an amazing hope that when we face these trials and difficulties, we know that actually it's an evidence of God working in our life, saying, I love you as my son or as my daughter. So we can enjoy God in the gospel. We can enjoy God in trials. And finally, we can enjoy God in the cross. So verse 10, Peter says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. And if we skip down to the end of verse 12, it says, even angels long, into, long to look into these things. Basically what Peter is saying is that we can just enjoy the privilege of knowing Christ crucified. And I don't know whether this ever strikes you, just how remarkable it is that we live as Christians in the time that we do. So Starting with, he says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances when they predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories would follow. Basically, like there were these prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and others, and they were like, they knew something was coming. They knew that the Messiah it seems, was going to die, that Jesus was going to be crucified. Yeah, they did not even have the whole picture at all. You think about David, right, when he's writing these psalms and you know, bits that prophesy the future Messiah and just loving God, and, and he didn't even have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to read. And if you think about just the privilege that we live now, where we've got, like, the whole picture we can see the Old Testament leading up to Jesus, Jesus being crucified and all, that, all of the good things that this gives us. What an amazing privilege that we know the power of what the cross has done for us. It says at the end, even angels long to look into these things. It's like kind of we need to get the wonder of just how privileged we are to be saved by grace and to have this glorious inheritance, but to be given the Bible for God to be showing us the whole picture of what Jesus means for us in a way which the prophets who wrote about here, they didn't get that. They only got that when they get to heaven and God told them all about it. And the angels even, I don't know why, what they're missing, clearly something, because they're longing to look into these things. Like, wow, this is amazing. This most important central event in the whole of human history. And actually we get to read about it, not just to read about it, but to live it through the Holy Spirit in us. I want us to come and take communion. Oh. Yeah. Communion now. That's Lou and Steve, if you can come up. 
We've seen that we worship God by enjoying God. And actually the point of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 12 is that we have so much to enjoy God for. And I want us to, in a moment, we're going to go up and get the bread and wine. We're going to bring it back and we're just going to take it together. And then we're going to sing Living Hope. And I want us to do two things. One, if we're in a place of just being able to listen to the words and feeling our hearts stirred and, and feeling that joy, I just want us to, to sing. Let's really belt it out um, and, and say, God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your presence with us. Thank you that you are our living hope. Hallelujah. And actually, for some of us, we might be then worshipping and just f- not feeling that joy. Kind of, we've all experienced it in worship, that feeling of just kind of a bit of a, a deadness, like this is not moving me. I know that what we're singing is amazing and it should be just inspiring joy within me, but it's just not there. And perhaps it might be that you want to listen, sing through the words as well, but just be praying like, God, would you in your Holy Spirit just stir a joy for you in me? Because I tell you what, even though we might not be feeling that joy at God this morning, the prayer that says, God, but I want to be experiencing that joy in you, please would you stir that in me by your Holy Spirit. That is a prayer which glorifies God. That's a prayer which says, hey God, you're worth knowing and enjoying.